All right. Well, it's good to see you here tonight, and um, I hope everybody is ready for Thanksgiving, or probably gluttony giving. Anybody going to be praying and asking for forgiveness after tomorrow, or will you be in a food coma? You sound like you're already in a food coma. This is trouble. That's all right. Well, uh, before we get started tonight, I do want to ask you to, uh, to be in prayer. Uh, there was a lady that uh, came and saw me this week, a uh, sweet elderly lady, and I'm not going to give her name, uh, but please be in prayer uh, for this lady. Uh, she came talking to me, um, uncertain of her salvation. She came to the realization she wasn't saved, uh, but she still ended up leaving yesterday, and it just broke my heart. And uh, I did everything I could except drag her out of the gates of hell personally. So y'all just, uh, y'all pray for her. Um, the reason why she didn't want to make a decision was she was too worried about what people would think. Because she's been in church pretty much all her life. She's 73 years old. But just came the realization she's not saved. She realized she's been baptized three times. Realized that she's been in church all her life and still doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So y'all just pray. Pray that uh, God will speak to her, that God will work in her life. And uh, I'm going to tell you, pride will kill you, and pride will send you to hell. So y'all pray that God will work in her life. All right, well, tonight we're going to talk about the prayer for revival. Now, let's just be honest. I know a lot of people are going to look at this, and they're going to say, well, brother, this is not really a prayer. No, it's, it's really not. You could almost call it a formula for revival. And a lot of people want to get in there, and they want to, to dictate a few things about this passage of Scripture, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to dig into this prayer for revival and understand what it takes for us to have a revival. Now, to be honest with you, the last great revival happened in 1904-1905. It was called the Welsh Revival. How many of you have ever heard of the Welsh Revival? Okay, a few of you had. How many of you have ever heard of Evan Roberts? Even fewer. All right. Uh, Evan Roberts was a gentleman that God used. He was not a pastor. He was a layman. He was a student uh, that was going to school to be a pastor. And God got a hold of Evan Roberts while he was at this church and began to speak to him about the need for revival in Wales. And Evan Roberts came up with a mindset. He began to pray and ask God for 100,000 people to be saved in Wales. 100,000 people. Now, for us, we might say, well, that, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of people. Well, imagine Wales being, you know, not that big. It's really not a huge country. So 100,000 people back in 1904, 1905 is, is a fairly large portion of people. But he wanted to see God move in their lives in a year. Now, let's just be honest. Let's say that God saved 100,000 people in the state of Tennessee in a year. I'd say that's pretty spectacular. That'd be an awesome movement of God. So he began to pray for that, and he, he came up with four points that he believed were an absolute necessity for revival to take place. And he preached this. Now, here's the thing. The pastor had already closed the service. He had already closed the service down. Now, you know what happens as soon as service closes down, right? You start heading for the doors, right? Now, at this time, the pastor, he made a statement. He said, well, Brother Evan, uh, if you have time, if you'd like to stay behind, he would like to say a few words. And about that time, everybody left except 20 people in the church. And Brother Evan got up here and he said, I believe that God is calling us to do these things. He said four things. Number one, we need to confess any known sin and put any wrong done to man right again. Number two, we need to put away any doubtful habit. 
Three, we need to obey the Spirit promptly. And four, confess your faith publicly. Now, I want you to understand that this man, he got down at the altar and he said, and here's what we're going to do. He said, we're just going to pray for revival. Now, here's the thing. They, they were at a prayer meeting. Prayer service was over. And 20 people wouldn't leave. Now, could you imagine if we had a prayer meeting that went on to midnight? How many of you would stay till midnight? I, I see a young man raise his hand. I'm, and a child shall lead them. Right? There's a few other people that raise their hands. Some of y'all are like, Turkey, if you think I'm staying here till midnight, you are crazy. You are nuts. But he, he did. They prayed and they prayed. And of, and of course, and that's the thing. I mean, prayer doesn't draw a lot of people to church, does it? Let's just be honest. If we said, man, we're going to have a prayer meeting and all we're going to do is pray, how many of you would actually show up? Y'all would say, well, brother, we're going to have to cut your salary. You didn't preach that night. If you're just going to pray, that, that's not enough. Well, can I tell you something? Evan Roberts recognized that prayer was the absolute essential to revival taking place. And they began to pray. And he got down on his knees and they remember his prayer. His prayer is talked about. You know what he prayed? He continuously prayed, oh, God, bend me. Bend me, Lord. Bend me. And he prayed it over and over and over. And the people began to confess their sins. And God began to move. And I'm here to tell you, 1904, 1905, they saw 100,000 souls saved in Wales. Revival broke out. Jails were empty. Things were beginning to happen. And all because a man said, oh God, bend me. Bend me. Well, when we look at this passage, I want us to see exactly that God is telling us to do the same thing, that he wants to bend us. But first, let's look at the identity in verse 14. It says, if my people, which are called by my name. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people say, well, brother, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that is referring to Israel. I agree. I agree. It is about Israel. But a lot of people look at us and they say, okay, well, if it's about Israel, then it has nothing to do with us today. I disagree with that. If we said that every verse that was about Israel had nothing to do with us, I would totally disagree with you. God has got some insight in these scriptures for us, just as he did for the land of Israel. He says, if my people, can I ask you a question? Are you God's people? Now, I might be a part of Israel but the Bible does tell me this, that I am a seed of Abraham because I've accepted Jesus Christ. And therefore, I may not be Israel, but I am a part of his family. If my people, I am his people. He says, and they're called by my name. I don't know of any better name to be called than a Christian. That shows that I am a little Christ. How many of you are little Christ? Christ juniors, whatever you want to call it. That means you are a follower of Christ. If my people who are called by my name, I am called by the name of Jesus Christ. I have no problem acknowledging to all people that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and there is no other, and you should as well. And so therefore, because I am a part of the people and I am called by his name, these verses can have significance to me. Now, here's what I want you to understand. A lot of people try to read the scripture and they say, well, this is about the United States of America. No, it's not. Do, does our nation need a transformation? The answer is yes, it does. We absolutely need revival in the United States of America. But I'm here to tell you, I think we need more so a revival in the church. And if we have revival in the church, we may have revival in America. The problem is that the church has to wake up. The church has to arise. Do you realize that judgment begins in the house of God? 
And if judgment begins in the house of God, then God has a word for us. So I believe if you want to take this passage of Scripture, no, you cannot apply it to America, but you can apply it to the people of God who need a recharge and a readjustment. So let's take a look at what he tells us. First, let's look at our responsibility, beginning with this. They shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There are four responsibilities that we have if we truly seek revival. Number one, we've got to humble ourselves. Humility. Now, here's the thing. I I wanted to look at some passages where revival actually took place in Scripture. So I pulled out a couple of passages. To me, there are two times where it seems like revival broke out in Scripture. One is in Jonah chapter 3. The other is in Nehemiah chapter 9. So we're going to kind of hold our place in both of those passages of Scripture because we need to take a look at both of these Scriptures as well to understand exactly what we're being told. So in Jonah chapter 3, we see that they humbled themselves in verse 5 by this. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. In verse 7, it says, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. This is talking about the king. By the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. If you flip over to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9 says in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Now in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people look at those passages and say, Well, Brother John, they say fasting is an Old Testament issue. I would disagree with you on that. I think about the words that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed when they came to him and they said, Hey, 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 why do we fast, but your disciples do not fast? And he said, well, while the bridegroom is here, there's no need for the groomsmen to fast. But when the bridegroom is taken away, they will begin again. So in other words, once Jesus returned, once he went to heaven, fasting would begin again for his disciples. So fasting is an important element. You might say, well, what what is fasting? You ready for this? Fasting is simply foregoing food. How many of you would think about fasting tomorrow? You're just like, you know what? I don't care about turkey, ham, none of that stuff. Yeah. I remember one time we did a 40-day fast at our church, and we had a sign-up sheet. And what we did was we knew nobody could fast 40 days. So what we did was we had different days signed up. And so we had different individuals that were slotted for each and every single day that was listed for the next 40 days before revival took place. So we had 40 names lined up that were going to fast. And for 40 days, we as a church were going to fast for God to move in the midst of our revival. Well, one guy got stuck on homecoming day. I'm like, dude, I am so sorry. He's like, no, it's all good. It's, it's no problem. I'm sitting there thinking, we're sitting there eating like gluttons at homecoming. He's over here thinking, I got to pray. You know, I got to pray. But here's the thing about fasting. Fasting is a foregoing of food in order to feast on the things of God. 
A lot of people fail at fasting because all they think about is letting go of food, not feasting on the things of God. In fact, if you're fasting, one of the things you need to be doing is those times where you would normally be eating is eating yourself upon the Word of God, feeding yourself on God's Word and spending time in prayer and doing it for the right reasons. Now, they would fast to show humility. In other words, their fasting was to say, God, we need you more than we need food. They would humble themselves. Not only did they fast, but they put on sackcloth. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, And put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. You come to Nehemiah chapter 9. It says, And with sackcloths and earth upon them. And what's interesting about that is sackcloth was one of the most horrible things to have to wear. How many of you guys have ever seen like those big old 100-pound potato sacks? Like the burlap potato sacks? You know what I'm talking about. You open up the end of it and you stick your arm down in there and you just start itching already just from sticking your hand in there to get the potatoes out, right? That would be sackcloth. You would take this and you would put it on your body. In fact, even in Jonah chapter 3, the king put it on his body. And what it was saying is, I'm going to forego the comforts of wearing normal clothes because my desire is to see God move. How many of you would put on a burlap sack and walk around town? You might think, well, brother, I'm I'm not putting on a burlap sack and walk around town. They might put me in the nut house when I get through. But you think about it. Do you think it would be a sign to people? Do you think people might pay attention and say, wait a minute, what's going on? You know what's interesting is in Jonah chapter 3, even the king took off his royal robe and he put on sackcloth. Kings didn't do that. But they wanted a national revival. They wanted a chance to see God move and change the outcome of what was taking place in their lives. And so even the king humbled himself with sackcloth. Third thing in the way they humbled themselves, Jonah 3, 6 tells us they put on ashes. It says, and they sat in ashes now i don't know about you but the last thing i'm going to do is after i burn something is go sit in it right that'd be very painful very painful but the understanding was to humble oneself they would sit in ashes a lot of times and according to nehemiah chapter 9 they would also throw dust on their heads These two were a symbol of saying, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. In other words, we are only as worthy as dirt. Man, could you say that? That your worth is really only about the worth of dirt. You think about that. When we die, it's funny how when people die, they, they try to keep their bodies from being messed up. You ever... How many of you have a mausoleum? Any of you guys have a, a, a plot in a mausoleum? My, my wife's grandmother had one in a mausoleum. She wanted to be at the highest point of the mausoleum. You know what her reasoning was? She didn't want any bugs eating her body. I'm like, you're dead. You're dead. Nobody's going to, no, nobody, nobody's going to open the casket back up and go, yep, that's what she looked like a hundred years ago. It's just not going to happen. But she was so afraid of that. My thing was simply this. From ashes you came and to ashes you shall return. Dust to dust. It's that simple. You're going to what? Decompose. Why worry about this body? This body is merely a tent. So what they're saying is, is guess what? We recognize our worth is nothing more than dust and ashes. They humbled themselves. 
Well, the second responsibility we have is to pray. Second Chronicles seven fourteen says, "They shall humble themselves and pray." I'm here to tell you, Nehemiah chapter nine, they prayed. In fact, verses six through thirty-eight shows Nehemiah's prayer, and what an amazing prayer it was. You see, oftentimes we don't realize what we're missing out when we don't pray. I wonder how many of us, you think about that, that old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. You know how beautiful that song is? Some of y'all are like, hour? Like sweet minute of prayer, right? Before I go to bed or before I eat my meal. How many of you, when you pray before your meal, the only thing you pray for is your food? You know? My brother, one time we were at Thanksgiving, his prayer was, bless the meat, let's eat. You know? And a lot of us, it's so funny to me, if somebody prays for something other than the food, the rest of the people are sitting there going, ready, amen, amen, amen. It's almost like, we're ready to eat, we just won't pray for the food. Well, let me ask you this question. Is it really a blessing if you're just praying for the food when you got so many other things that God has placed on your mind, so many other people that God has placed on your mind? If God puts them on your mind, you better start praying for them right then. Why wait? It's always interesting to me because here's the thing in church, it's so easy for somebody to come up and say, Brother, I want you to pray for such and such. And you know what it's easy for us to do? We'll go, Sure, I'll pray. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for that situation. And then we walk away. And you know what we do? We forget. We don't pray. But you know what we do? The next time we see that brother, we go, oh, yeah. Dear Lord, please. Put... Hey, I've been praying for you, brother. I've been praying for you. How you doing? Things getting better? Right? Isn't that how we do it? Man, I've learned a long time ago, somebody says, brother, I want you to pray for me. Let's start praying right then. There's no need to wait. There's no need to forget. If you start praying right then, it'll be a lot more heavily upon your mind so that you pray for them later as well. The thing about prayer is that it is our connection to God. I think of prayer like I think of communication with your spouse. How many of you, uh, how many of you like to talk to your spouse? I'm get some of y'all in trouble tonight. That was not many hands. We're going to have a marriage conference coming up very soon. <laughs> There were not many hands on that one. You think about this. If you don't communicate. Now, remember this. How many of you communicated when you were dating, before you got married? Some of y'all were like, oh, I remember those phone calls. I remember the letters he used to send me. Some of you young people are like, letters? Stamps? Text? Right? You think about it. We, we, we would always talk. I remember talking all through the night on the phone with my wife before we got married. Now she calls me up. I'm like, 15 minutes. I'm like, babe, I'm tired. I got to go. And I think some of y'all treat God like that, don't you? You're like, on a, you're like talking and praying to God. You're like, Lord, I'm tired. I got to go to bed. Forgive me. Click on the television, watch another 45-minute show. We're good to go. You see, we fail to realize how important prayer is. We fail to realize how important prayer is in the church. I remember one time we were praying at church, and I, I love the way Brother Mike does it. I love that. I enjoy getting down here and praying, praying about specific things. But I remember one time I was doing that at the church I was at in North Carolina, and this lady walks out, and I remember she was complaining to somebody. Go figure, complaining in church, right? She was complaining as she walked out, and she said, I just don't think I'm coming back on Wednesday. And the lady asked her, said, well, why are you saying you won't come back on Wednesday? She said, they pray too much. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we pray too much. 
I didn't know a church could do that. Do we preach the word too much? Do we worship too much? Is it just something you don't like? And that's really what it comes down to. We could do a lot more worship and we could do a lot more studying of God's word. But the moment we start praying a little bit more, people get a little bit uncomfortable. But what they don't realize is God said my house shall be called a house of prayer. Prayer. Why? Because we realize that without God, we can do absolutely nothing. Number three, he says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now you think, well, that should be pretty easy, right? We, we come to church, we're seeking the face of God. Well, that's not always necessarily true. Nehemiah 9, verse 3, I love this. They stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Wow, a half-a-day service. That's what I'm talking about, right? Six hours? Now you say, well, what do you mean six hours? Well, I'm just taking it if we had a 12-hour day, right? Because that's what a lot of people want to say. Well, they say, you know, the Jews, their day was six to six. Well, okay, let's, six hours. If we had a six-hour service, I guarantee some of you guys would be pulling out your phones going, dude, it is well past dinner time. We are hungry. Do we get a break? Can we have an intermission? This is a little much. But imagine if it literally was what he talked about, a fourth a day and a fourth a day. They had a 12 Hour service, six hours of worship. Could you imagine Travis up here leading worship for six hours? Now, a part of that worship is not just singing, but is, get this, confessing sins. When I was at Liberty, we tried to copy what another school was doing down in Brownwood, Texas. They, had, they began to have a revival at this Christian school in Brownwood, and so our campus pastors wanted what they had, so they tried to copy it. Let me tell you something. You can't mimic the Spirit of God. You just got to go get the Spirit of God and figure out what he's doing and then change what you're doing. But what happened at that school was real simple. They had a young person come up and come to the podium and say, I've got some sins to confess, and I need y'all to pray for me. Now, could you imagine that if somebody got up in church and said, hey, I need y'all to pray for me. This is the sin that I'm dealing with. You know what we worry about with that? We worry about what I talked about with that lady earlier who was worried about what people think about her salvation. What if somebody knows my sin? But this young lady got up and she got up to the podium and she confessed her sin. And then all of a sudden after she confessed her sin, a line of students started coming up. They spent five hours confessing their sins and the college students were on their faces before God asking God to forgive them. They had to postpone classes because they stayed up all night praising God and glorifying God and studying his word. They were willing to forego school because God had showed up in a mighty way while they confessed their sins. Oh, but let's just be honest. Some of y'all are sitting there going, well, I might go if somebody goes first, but I ain't going first. How many Nehemiah, they worshiped. And, they, and then get this, they studied God's word. They listened to a man read. Now get this, read the word of God. I wonder how many of us would stick around if somebody just read their sermon. Do you know that one of the most powerful revivals happened in America? It was known as the Great Awakening. Maybe you've heard of that. The Great Awakening was started by several great preachers, but one in particular's name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached probably the most famous sermon ever known to man, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard of that sermon. 
Maybe you've even read it. Did you know that that's exactly what Jonathan Edwards did? As he stood behind the podium, he read his sermon. Read it. They say that the people that were in the church at that time felt that the floors opened up underneath them. That the pit of hell's engulfing flames were shooting up at them. And they were hanging on by a spider web. They said there were people screaming in the church while he was preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God because they were so afraid of going to hell and they would not let go. That's what happens when people confess, they get deep into the Word of God, they seek the face of God. You ready for this? It says, They shall humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Turn. That means you don't go back. Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. Let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? That was the words of the king. Who knows if God will not. I, like the, I don't like the word repent because that's a horrible translation there. The actual word is relent. Okay? God doesn't repent because he never sins. He might relent. That doesn't mean he changes his mind either. You need to understand that. Okay? A lot of people have this misunderstanding. God changes mind. God doesn't change his mind. God knows everything. I mean, let's just get real. God doesn't ever have to change his mind. He has perfect knowledge of all things. What it simply is is this. God says, here are the two paths that are laid out for you. You can continue on in your sin and destruction is going to be evident. I'm going to destroy your city. Or you can turn from your sin and I'll not destroy you. And I'll restore joy and peace and happiness to your city once again. That's what it means to relent. God has given them two choices. The idea is this is the choice that's coming because of the current situation they're in. But God is offering them a way out, an avenue. And so they're praying, God, you know, who knows? God may change his mind. God's not going to change his mind. What happens is the people change their ways. And when we turn from our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So they had an opportunity to change the outcome that was coming their way. They turned. I love it in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, and verse, verse 2, it says this. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Let me tell you something. Some of the things you got to do is you got to separate yourself from certain people too. You know who's going to take you down the wrong path. You say, well, but they're my best friend. I've been with them all my life. Yeah, but if they keep causing you to go down the wrong path, they're not exactly the best friend, are they? The best friend is going to lift you up. It's going to get you closer to God. It's going to help you live the right manner. You've got, sometimes you've got to separate yourself. Now, please understand. Listen to me, folks. That doesn't mean that every lost person in the world, you separate from them and you never ever speak to them. That's not at all what it's talking about. Because who are we going to win to Jesus if we do that? It's just you stop hanging out with them. You stop going doing the things that you were doing with them previously. You separate from the actions of what they have become and what they're doing so that you don't follow in that path any longer. Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. It's always funny to me when a, a young lady will come to me and she'll say, well, I, I, I want to date this young man. And I've had this happen so many times. Young girl, she'll come up and she's like, I, I really love him. And uh, Pastor, I just want you to pray, pray for my boyfriend. And he's not a Christian. And I'm going to win him to the Lord. 
I mean, I just want to just run my head against the wall and go, honey, how many times do you think I've heard that one? Can I just tell you something? I think it's great you want to win him to the Lord, but don't date him. Don't date him. You see, I believe in dating to mate. If you're not dating to mate, there's no point in dating. If you don't think you can marry that person, don't be with that person. It's that simple. And let me tell you something, ladies. As young as you are, y'all are too young to even think about getting married. So why are you dating? <laughs> Just telling it like it is. But it's always funny to me. They're like, I'll, uh, can I just tell you something? If we're standing, if I'm on the edge of a pool and you're inside the pool and I reach down to pick you up, is it going to be easier for me to pull you up or you to pull me down? It's going to be a lot easier for you to pull me in. You could weigh half my weight and I guarantee you, you'll still pull me in before I pull you out. It's easier to pull somebody down. Sometimes you've got to separate yourself. Now, again, that doesn't mean you completely say, I don't want anything to do with that person anymore. No, you tell them about Jesus and continue to tell them about Jesus. But until they change, you say, you know what? I can't be with you in that way. It's that simple. Help yourself. He says, turn from their wicked ways. You don't want to go back. You don't want to be who you used to be. Revival means there's going to be a transformation. Well, we've seen our responsibility. Let's look at God's response. He says, then will I hear from heaven. People say, well, Brother John, God's not answering my prayers. Some of y'all love Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayers, don't you? Can I just go ahead and put this on point? That's a garbage song. There is no such thing as unanswered prayers. Nothing. You say, well, well, Brother John, I'm not hearing from God. What do you mean there's no such thing as unanswered prayers? I mean, God hasn't answered my prayer. No, God has answered your prayer. It's just, have you heard what he said? Now, I'm going to tell you how God speaks. I'm going to tell you how God answers prayer because it just may not be the way you want it to be. So here's how it goes. If the request is wrong, God says no. If it's not what God wants for you, guess what? God has every right to say, I don't think so. How many of you have, when you were a kid, you made out your Christmas list? How many of you had a really long Christmas list? Come on now. How many of you had those old Sears catalogs, Toys R Us catalogs? You circled everything in the book. You said, Mama, Daddy, anything in here? In fact, all of this would be great. And then you ended up with a pair of socks, Right? You wouldn't go up and say, I can't believe my parents said no. Man, my parents used to tell me no all the time. God has every right to say no. If the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing's wrong, God says slow. In other words, it may not be the right time for God to answer it in the way you want it answered. It's coming. You just have to wait. It's not the right time. In fact, in the book of Daniel, there was a time where Daniel prayed, and it took 21 days for the answer to get to him. Did Daniel give up? No, he persisted in his prayers. Until God says, no, you keep praying. God may say, it's just not time. It's just not time. So if the request is wrong, God says, no. If the timing's wrong, God says, slow. If you're wrong, God says, grow. 
You see, if you've got sin in your heart, Isaiah 59 says it puts a veil between you and God, and God is not going to answer your prayer because your heart is not right with him. I mean, could you imagine when I did something? How many, how many of you ever got grounded? Anybody get grounded growing up? Y'all a bunch of liars in here. Every hand should go up. I know you all got grounded at some time, right? Stuck in time out, right? That's what they did back in the day. Well, they used one of these, didn't they? Huh. I got grounded plenty of times with a belt on the ground. You know? Child abuse. I tried that once. He said, go ahead and call 911. I didn't push it. But you think about it. I mean, when you get grounded, it's always funny to me, the kids that come up, and you're like, you're grounded for a week. Like a day goes by, and they go, can I have my phone back? Really? What does a week mean to you? Seven days, right? Not one day, seven days. You know, they come back day two, they're like, can I have my phone back? In other words, now let's just be honest. This is work for a lot of kids. If they aggravate you enough, you do what? Fine. Fine, have it. That's horrible. Can I tell you why? They're going to keep doing it. It'll happen the next time and the next time and the next time. And your grounding means nothing. God doesn't give in till you get right. God's not going to go, oh, well, they really need me and they're really asking for it. Even though there's that sin in their heart and in their life and they won't give it over to me, but they really need my help. No, God's going to say, you got to grow first. You got to get your heart right. You got to be living free of sin and then I will answer your prayer. So if the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing's wrong, God says slow. If you're wrong, God says grow. But if the request and the timing and you're right, God says go. He answers every single prayer. He says, I'll hear from heaven. I love it in Jonah 3, verse 10. He says, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil. God relented of the evil. God heard them. He listened to them when they cried out to him and they turned from their wicked ways and they repented of their sins and they humbled themselves and they prayed and they sought the face of God. God heard them and he turned from the evil that was going to befall them. Could you imagine what would have happened if Sodom and Gomorrah fell on their faces before God? They might not have been consumed. But he says, I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin." Jonah 3.10, he finishes by saying, And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did not. I want you to understand that God will forgive sin. But I also need you to understand something. That doesn't always mean that the consequences of your sin are let go. You say, well, what do you mean, brother? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's say one of you guys came in tonight and you murdered somebody just before you came in. I know this is a rough story, but let's say you murdered somebody. You decided tonight at the altar you're going to get your heart right with God. God, please forgive me. I killed somebody. And all of a sudden the cops come in and they arrest you and you go, well, wait a minute. God's forgiven me. Yeah, you're forgiven. But there's still the consequences of your sin. And one time a young lady came into me and she asked me, she said, pray for me. She said, I'm, 
She was 17 years old and she was pregnant. She said, I, I really know I messed up. I messed up. And I said, yeah, it happens. I said, now, one thing I do want you to know, that baby is still a blessing. Because I'm going to tell you something. A lot of times we end up showing condemnation on young people. And, and a lot of people say, well, we don't believe in abortion. Well, Trump, sometimes we force our hand by being so judgmental. Hello? You know what I told that young lady? I said, I still love you. You may have messed up, and yes, you, you do need to be forgiven by God, and you do need to repent of your sin, but don't ever think that that baby is not a blessing from God. Ever. Amen. You know what's interesting? She prayed, and she asked God to forgive her, and she turned, she changed, and but I remember she came back a couple of weeks later, and she said, she said, I thought you said God would forgive me. I said, he did, and she goes, why am I still pregnant? Because the baby's not a sin. Your actions were, and your actions created consequences, and therefore God may want you to live with a consequence. I'm glad she kept that child because I'm here to tell you, now she's in church and all her children are safe too. Could have turned out completely different how we handled the situation. God will forgive. Let me tell you something. We as God's people ought to be able to forgive too. And guess what? You may have to forgive somebody that don't even apologize to you. Man, isn't that hard? Forgiving somebody that don't apologize to you? Because if you don't forgive them, you end up holding a grudge, and that puts a barrier between you and God, and it just ain't worth it. Man, if you just learn to live with the mindset that I don't care what people say to me, I don't care what people do to me, I still love them in spite of their sin. He says, I hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, Euripus, and I'll heal their land. And this is why a lot of people think that this is just for Israel. And, and yes, I would agree, because the promises come from the blessings and the cursings all the way back in Deuteronomy. It also comes from the prayer that Solomon prayed, asking God to forgive them when they fail and when they fall short, and to bring about the rains and all of those things that God had placed blessings upon them. And so, yeah, of course he's talking about that, but here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that God will heal the church when we do these things as well. You say, well, wait a minute, brother. you telling me that the church can be sick? I'm telling you today the church is sick. You say, well, wait, brother, you ain't been here long enough at Hillcrest to know if we're sick. You're a part of the church. You're sick. You say, well, how do you know that? I know it because, let's just be honest, how many of us are humbling ourselves like we ought to? How many of us are falling on our faces before God? I'm here to tell you, the altar should always be full. You want to know why? Because we are unworthy to even be here. You agree with that? I'm unworthy to be in God's house, to be in God's presence. I am unworthy. So I need to humble myself before God. I don't mind falling on my knees before God or falling on my face. A lot of us don't realize being prostrate before God shows God that we are serious about getting right with him. A professor about one time, he told me, he said, I got down on my face in the church. And he said, God said, you got to get lower. So he said, I went outside and I stuck my face in the dirt. And God said, you got to get lower. He said, I dug a little hole out for my nose so that I could put my face completely against the ground. And he said, is this low enough, Lord? And he said, yeah. We got to be willing to humble ourselves. We got to pray. Man, we as a church, we've got to pray. And I'm going to tell you, Oftentimes people say, well, we want to pray heaven down. I don't want to pray heaven down. I want to pray myself up to heaven. 
You see, all, all too often when we talk about worship, we talk about wanting to bring heaven down. God wants us to bring us into his abode. I want to be like Enoch. I want to walk with God and just transcend into heaven. How about you? I'm not happy enough just being here. But we got to pray. we got to seek. we got to turn. Man, if we, if we would do those things, man, I'm here to tell you, you, you want to see revival break out in church. I'm going to tell you what will happen when revival breaks out in the church. When service is over, it's not over. We're going to be on our faces before God. We'll see that filled up, and we'll be baptizing people every single week. We'll see Lebanon change. We'll see jails emptied out. We'll see lives transformed. We'll see our community changed and absolutely different. We'll be seeing people worshiping together on the streets when they go to their work. We won't see people like the ACLU winning when a city decides to stand up and say, we're going to pray whether you like it or not. We won't worry about those things because we got God on our side, and we don't worry about whether anybody tries to shut it down because we'll shut them up you see that's revival and we need it so desperately but the question is you ready for this the question is who'll pay for it who'll pay for it well brother what if what 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 if i go to my work and i tell somebody about jesus and i lose my job god's got another job for you that always blows my mind brother what what if I go to somebody's house and I knock on their door and they close the door in my face? That's fine. I'll pray for them and I'll go back. Let them close it on my face again if they need to. You mean God wants us to all just be one big happy family? Can I tell you something? It always blows me away. Revival will happen when churches start working together instead of against each other. When somebody gets saved, do you... I want you to understand, I don't care whether they come here or they go to Emmanuel or they go to the journey or they go somewhere else. I don't care where they go as long as they go somewhere. Do you realize that if God moved in the city of Lebanon like we pray he will move and the rest of the 47% get saved and get in church, there still isn't enough room for them in every single church in the community. Not enough room for them. We'd have to build more. We'd have to start more churches. That would be revival. That would be revival. But who will pay the cost? I guess that's the question I have for you tonight is how badly do you want it? Evan Roberts stayed till midnight praying. Bend me. Bend me.